This is a lesser known serial killer case from the early 70s out of Houston, Texas, where dozens of boys were lured, raped, tortured, and murdered by Dean Coral, otherwise known as the Candyman. After Coral was killed by his accomplice, many of his victims would never be found, and at least one is still waiting to be identified, which is how you can help. Before we dive into the case, I want to let you know that the content is for mature audiences and still might not be for everyone. I also want to remind you we have a special shout out to everyone who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. So please subscribe, rate five star, and write a review. After the episode, I'll also share with you a couple true crime podcasts I think that you're going to like. More on that after the case. The Candyman, Serial Killer, and his last known but unnamed victim. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for episode 15, The Candyman, Serial Killer Out of Houston. Houston is the most populous city in the state of Texas, fourth largest in the U.S., located on the Gulf of Mexico, about 250 miles from Dallas and 165 from Austin. In 1853, it was the site of the first public execution. And in the 1970s, Houston's coastal towns were known for what is called the Houston Mass Murders, the deadliest case of serial mass killings in U.S. at the time. From 1970 to 1973, at least 29 young boys and teens were tortured and killed by Dean Coral and his two accomplices. Coral was nicknamed the Candyman because of his family's candy businesses. Many of his victims worked at his candy shops. He would also prey on teens who had a history of running away, and he would force them to write postcards to their families saying that they had joined the counterculture and left town. He had the help of luring victims with candy, drugs, alcohol, and two teenage accomplices, who were the same age as many of his victims, which probably made those boys feel safe. He would take them camping, swimming. They would stay at his house. He would then drug them, tie them up with ropes and handcuffs, rape and torture them. The bodies were buried in at least three locations, including a boathouse Coral had rented that had a dirt floor. Coral would cover the bodies in lime to help mask the smell. If that sounds familiar, this is the same method that serial killer John Wayne Gacy used when he would dress as a clown and rape and torture his victims, young men, and then bury them wrapped in plastic and covered in lime in the crawl space under his house. Gacy once said that Coral was his inspiration. Coral's murder spree ended in 1973 with a gunshot. On August 8th, the so-called Candyman was killed by his teen accomplice, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. At first, Henley and fellow accomplice David Brooks were celebrated as heroes, but then the truth came out 
they would eventually confess and be sentenced to death, which was changed to life in prison without the possibility of parole years later. Brooks and Henley watched in the Texas heat as inmates excavated the mass graves and pulled remains from the ground. Eventually all but seven would be identified. That is, until one scientist who was haunted by these crimes, seeing the news coverage as a teen growing up in Texas, would be put on the case. Do you think that there is more victims out there that haven't been discovered? Well, I absolutely have a strong opinion that there are more out there, at least 10, I think. That's forensic anthropologist Dr. Sharon M. Derrick, coordinator of the forensics program at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. I recently spoke with her about the case and her time at Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences, where she helped to name six of Dean Corll's victims. Right now, she's hoping this podcast helps generate some interest and information that might help identify the final known victim that some refer to as the swimsuit boy because of what he's wearing. But in this report, we will refer to him by case number 3356. Why does this work speak to your heart so much? I feel for the families. Um, When I first started in the medical examiner office many years ago, um, I really saw these individuals that in the files that had never been identified, and I couldn't help but wonder what their families were feeling. But with the advent of DNA and with a forensic anthropologist being on staff uh, full-time in an, at a medical examiner's office, we were able to do so much more work um, in this direction than before. And when I was able to provide information to these families who've been waiting so long, It felt like um, I had really done something good, Um, but underneath all of that, it's a mystery, it's a puzzle, and it intrigues me to try to solve it. How did you get involved with this particular case of the Lost Boys and um, ended up solving so many? Well, I came in as an anthropologist who had never worked at a medical examiner's office before. And I was green, um, in t- not green, sickly green, but, but green in terms of my experience. So um, one of the things I was supposed to do was um, help to clear out individuals who were still located in storage in the morgue because they, they had not been identified and the medical examiner's office was keeping them until they were sure that they could not identify them because, you know, there's new technology that comes up. And so I went in to work with these bodies because some of them were fully fleshed bodies that we were able to follow up with DNA at that time and uh, get them identified pretty quickly. But there were these three boxes in the morgue that said Houston mass murders. And I remembered from back when I was a teenager in Austin, Texas, and I was reading the newspaper because I I guess I was one of those kind of kids um, reading the newspaper and I saw the news story about this and it just blew me away. It was so horrible. And I'm just a little bit younger than most of these kids. 
I'm actually a couple of years older than the the youngest one. And so these boys, pictures of who the ones that were identified right away, they looked like the boys I would have loved to date. You know, the, the kind of crowd that I hung around with. And it just blew me away. So then when I walked into the morgue, Houston Mass Murders, I got goosebumps. And so I opened the boxes and they had remains and personal effects in them. Um, I didn't realize that there were more than three individuals there in those boxes. One of the problems with, um, with the identification of these boys is that when they were recovered, there were no anthropologists or archaeologists pulling them out of the dirt. And we would do it scientifically, but they had individuals from the prisons and the jails uh, coming in and digging these holes. And so there was a lot of mingling, co-mingling, we call it. So at any rate, I wanted to work on those individuals. And so I asked our deputy chief medical examiner to give me permission. And he said, sure, go for it. And so that's how it started. You know, you were able to deliver news to some families. Talk to me about that. Yes. So the first boy that we identified uh, was Randy Harvey. And, you know, when you start something like this, you try to go for what we euphemistically call the low hanging fruit uh, individuals that you think you can get done quicker than the others. And it might take longer than the others. And Randy had a whole lot of personal effects and um, started working on him first. But I, I couldn't make his ID until we had uh, comparison DNA from family. And so that's sometimes the hardest part with these older cases. And so I searched and searched for anybody that um, might be listed in the files. And sure enough, there was one of those pink message slips uh, where someone had called into the office in 1973 and said, I think this is my brother. I want to see his personal effects. So I can know. And she was 16 at the time. That was the younger sister. And the office said, no, you must bring in your mother. You cannot come by yourself. And her mother refused to come. So they dropped it. So, yeah. <laughs> so wow. I had, yeah, I had where she was living in 1973 and her phone number and everything. But of course, she was no longer there. And she had a different last name because she had married and um, so it took a long time to put all this together and find out how to contact this person. And it, it turns out that I found her name in a, a funeral notice in the paper. She'd gone to somebody's funeral. And here's here's how I began. And it's it's a long story, too long for this. But finally found her and I found her sister as well. And they both gave DNA. And we were able to make the, the ID. You're a scientist and a detective. <laughs> well, I think all scientists are detectives to some extent, right? I think so. That detective work would lead Dr. Derek behind bars and face-to-face -face with two men serving life in prison, convicted of helping kill and lure Coral's victims. You met um, David Owen and Elmer Wayne. Yeah, talk to me about the experience and did you learn anything? Okay, so David Owen Brooks um, has been in prison uh, as well as Elmer Wayne Henley ever since 1974. 
because, you know, 73 and they went through their trials and they were sentenced to death. But what happened was California um, stepped in with their no more um, uh, no more capital punishment and the, the nation agreed with that. And so for two years time there, I believe it was two years time, there were no capital punishments and they were reducing the sentence or changing the sentence for a lot of folks. And in Texas, that worked for them and they then um, got life sentences and I don't remember which one has multiple, but one of them has multiple life sentences, probably, probably Henley. Um, and they keep coming up for parole every three years. Um, and now we've extended the time period. Texas has extended the time period between parole evaluations. So one of them just came up and it'll be another five years. But anyway, they're in different facilities here in Texas. Um, I went to see Brooks twice. And the first time he was very helpful, and I really believe he helped me to identify, helped us to identify Randy Harvey. He says he didn't, and he's very vociferous about that because at that point, very soon after that, he came up for parole and he was denied. And I think he worried that his help, which I would think would be a benefit, it may have had something to do with that. Um, he He's definitely someone who has been, what do you call it when somebody's been in prison for so long, institutionalized? He's just, his personality is institutionalized. A fight broke out while we were there and he immediately stood up and put his hands behind his back for handcuffs um, because that's the policy. That's what people have to do. Um, he's very unusual when you look at him in the face and I don't know if he was like that when he was a kid, you know, and got into all this trouble. Um, but he he's far away when you look at him. And so, yeah, but he did help me. I'm not going to say what he did, what he said, but he helped me. He yeah, I was going to ask you if, if you asked him why he did it. I didn't ask him that. I did not because he's not going to tell me anything. You know, I mean, why, you know, after all that time and I'm just this little female anthropologist coming in, well, why'd you do it? So, but they both say, Henley and Brooks both say that they were afraid of Dean and Dean kept him in drugs. And so they were drugged out most of the time. They were afraid Dean would kill them if they didn't do what Dean told them to do. Um, sometimes they slept at Dean's house and Henley said that often they slept with their backs to each other so that they could protect each other in case he came during the night and killed them because he threatened to. Um, so there's that. And, and I think that did affect them. Um, so I don't know. But Henley, Henley is always very talkative. He's vociferous. And he I spent five hours with him. I, I spent like 45 minutes the first time with Brooks and maybe 30 minutes the second time because he really doesn't have a lot he wants to say. But Henley was going on and on and he would be really helpful, except he can't remember any of the boys that might be a match to the unidentified boys. He told us a lot about, um, about uh, Scott, Mark Scott to help us understand that he wasn't our person. And it helped us with that, um, changing that misidentification. But mostly he's like, nah, I told you everything I know. And he said, he says, there's 
there was another person who was involved. Um, and I have that person's name. Um, I asked law enforcement to go out and interview him. I don't know if he's moved since then. Um, the detective who went out and interviewed him said he believed him when he said, no, I was a victim and I was lucky I didn't get killed and I didn't do anything. So that's where that's standing. And at this point, the only reason that I would want information from him is not to have him adjudicated. It's just to find out if he knows these boys that the other two don't remember. Now we're left with one known victim. We call them by their case number, which is ML73-3356. He was in one of those boxes, as were the, the striped swimsuit that was an older version of Catalina male swimsuits, had a different logo on it, um, and he, of course, had some distinctive clothing. Um, he, I, I did the anthropological analysis, and we came up with a biological profile, which is also kind of like a, a demographic profile, so that we know a little bit more about the age, the sex, the ancestry, um, stature, those kind of things, to help us search for the right person. Um, and then, of course, we submitted DNA. Among those remains were the last boy that we identified as well. So that made our sixth person because I told you about the commingling right. and we sent, yeah. And I, it was, it was a difficult uh, analysis because we're looking at teenage boys all the same age. They're either white or Hispanic. So very difficult to make an assessment on that from postcranial remains. Um, so anyway, we, we got a full profile from him from uh, 373-3356. And we also had facial approximations done. We have three facial approximations that you may not have seen all three of them. Uh, sent that out. Um, we've done a lot of local um, PR trying to find somebody who knows him. But so have far- any luck, any tips come in or anything like that? Lots of tips, none that worked. And it, it has, I've met a whole lot of people working on that um, who also are missing their loved one from that time period who was a teenage boy in the right location. So we don't have all of the bodies, um, but we've, and so we've not been able to give them that answer. But yeah, so despite all of that, nothing. So the next step we believe is uh, the forensic genealogy projects um, and, and trying to find where his family may be because that, who knows, they may be in say Montana. I mean, we don't know. And we haven't had enough coverage nationally. We need more national coverage. Yeah. Let's talk on that for a, for a minute, doctor, because um, you know, you grew up in Texas, you knew about this case but, you know, a lot of people that I talk to about this particular, the case, um, this serial killer, they don't know about it. No, no, they, they don't. And they're like, who's that? 30 boys, 30 boys that we know of. And we, we do believe there are more. So that's a huge case that people in other states don't really know. And, you know, one of the reasons for that, that I believe, is that Houston as cosmopolitan and huge as Houston is, it's taken a long time for the 
rest of the nation to recognize that Houston is something to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And I think for many, many years, um, nobody was really paying attention to what was going on in Houston. And I'm talking just the general public nationally. So I think that's part of the problem. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode is because of what Dr. Derek has to say next about the unnamed victim in the case. So much is known about this young man, but no family has ever come forward. Because of what he had with him, uh, the swimming suit, um, plus his other clothing, we, and, and the amount of decomposition that was there, we believe that he may have gone missing in 1972. That's, that's our thought. That could be wrong. Um, and then maybe spring or summer, because one of the things that Dean Coral was known for was taking a van of boys out to the beach to go swimming in Galveston. And it's possible that he thought he was going swimming or he did go swimming and it didn't go so well afterwards. Talk to me about the items of clothing. And I know that you have, um, or at least you used to, do you, you might still have a image of the shirt. I do. I have I have images of all of the clothing. I also have one full image taken um, by our uh, forensic imaging department at, at IFS uh, that has all of it in it, and it's very good um, in terms of detail. So you can make it larger and still have crisp pictures. And I'll post pictures of his effects, the t-shirt, the boots, and what a forensic artist thinks that he may look like on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, under the investigative notes section. And while you're there, you can also submit case ideas for future episodes. For this one, Dr. Derek tells me that even though she is no longer working at the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences, she still has a picture of that victim in her office today of what he may look like. It's a case that haunts her. Well, it reminds me, every day when I come in my office, this boy is still unknown. His family, at least some of his family, is still out there. I imagine probably his parents are gone. It's really possible. He might have siblings who are getting into their 60s. Um, What happens when all we have is cousins? Because cousins aren't good comparison normally for DNA. We have to find these family members who can give us a good DNA sample that will work quickly. And how would you describe 3356 um, when we get the word out? He was relatively short, maybe around 5'6". Um, of course, you know, he may not have hit his growth spurt yet because he was probably 15 to 17 years old. Um, he had really nice teeth. They were in very good shape, no fillings, um, he, which... Often tells us that he was from a household that maybe had enough money to send them to the dentist. Um, he might be Hispanic or have some Hispanic ancestry, but he probably looks European American um, due to the color of his hair. His hair uh, was a medium brown, um, so there's that. Um, he is, I think he's handsome. I don't, you know, it's hard to tell, but his facial bone structure, it just, it, it, 
makes me think that he probably was was good looking, which may have been one reason that uh, Dean Coral picked him. And then the shirt. Let's talk again about the shirt and the numbers. Okay, so the shirt on the back uh, is very distinctive. There's a big decal on the back, which I actually tracked the, uh, down the industry that made that particular decal, but that because I was hoping there might be not total national, you know, maybe it's someplace in Texas or something, but no, it's Pennsylvania. And they're closed now. They're closed down. But it looks like a peace sign over an American flag. And then underneath it, there somebody wrote, it's handwriting with an indelible marker. Somebody wrote um, the, it's like, um, maybe late for my funeral, we thought about. It's L48, uh, L84, I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've said it. L84MF, L84MF. Now, the, the um, M may be an H. We think it's an M. Um, and if it is late for my funeral, that was something that had a military tone to it from the time period. You know, we're looking at just around the end of the Vietnam, the American, the U.S. Um, uh, war in Vietnam. And he may have had a father or an older brother who was in the military. There's something about this that just looks like he maybe did. But then we don't know. And I've run it all through Department of Defense and tried to figure out there's nobody that I can match to him. And now bring me to current day and where are we in the identification process? What's now going to happen? So when I left the um, IFS, we had a full DNA profile on him. Not, you know, it's not your whole genome. It's the full full um, DNA profile that allows them to run an identification comparison. So there was that. We have all the anthropology findings. Everything's documented. Everything's good. He was then buried because you really shouldn't just keep somebody forever um, as long as you have obtained everything you can to be able to find family. Um, right now, because of the new work in forensic genealogy, we um, the IFS with my absence, is working on uh, having a forensic genealogist um, work on the case. And we're hoping that, like in California, and there are a couple of other places that GEDmatch has been able to help with this, and forensic genealogy um, workers and researchers, to make an idea of an old case. So that's where we are. What's the likelihood or what... How much hope do you have that that'll lead to a solve? I have so much hope for that. It's such a great emerging technology, and it has shown its value in several cases in the U.S. So I'm really hoping that my old agency will be able to do that, and I'll be able to share in that, in that to me, joy of knowing who this boy is. Do you think that, you know, you knowing the case so well, do you think that there is more victims out there that haven't been discovered? And where do you think they are? Or like, you know, have you given that any thought? Well, I absolutely have a strong opinion that there are more out there, at least 10. 
I think, but I'm very concerned that uh, they were not found before Hurricane Ike washed out the beach at High Island. I think there were probably more individuals um, on the beach, and that is completely gone, even the road next to it. So those individuals will never be found. Um, and I, I'm very sorry for that, that we were not able to, to figure that out before Hurricane Ike came through. If you have any information in a possible identity, you can call the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences at 713-796-6858 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678. And I want to remind you, after the episode, stick around for a few shout-outs to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts and I'll share with you a few podcasts I think that you might like. But before we go, a final thought from Dr. Sharon M. Derrick, who has been instrumental in naming six of serial killer Dean Quarles' unnamed victims. For your reporting on this, if you can just make it so clear to people, not necessarily with Jed Match, but if they have a missing person who's closely related to them, even from 40 years ago, please go submit your DNA. There is the um, NamUs system and, and they will send somebody out to take your DNA swab. Um, they'll help you file a police report even from way back then and get this information into the system. You never know where it will match. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. The first one coming from Great Elliot, and you are a great man, coming from Canada, and it says, it's titled, The Male Nancy Hickst, Global Crime Beat Podcast, in quotation marks. And what he's referring to there is a podcast host, Nancy Hickst, who's also a Canadian journalist. And she started this past year also, and also, like me, talking about the cases that she's covered over her career that, that haunt her. So that's one that you might want to check out. But anyway, he writes, this is a huge compliment. I just subscribed to your podcast and your clear and deliberate delivery of the facts of the case are appreciated and obviously professional. Your personal connections to reporting some of these crimes is a bonus for listeners. Your narrative is easy to follow and nothing is left out five stars. Thank you, sir. The next one comes from Lucky Jean or Jeannie. Um, it's titled, A New True Crime Podcast I Love from the United States. And it says, great production values, skilled host, unique subjects, and exclamation mark, really good. Well, I really appreciate it. Again, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed because we are up against networks, those studios, the TV channels. I do it all myself. So thank you. It's easy. It's free. Just hit five star, please. Subscribe, tell a friend, write a review, and include your real name 
and your podcast. If you're a podcaster, I want to give you a proper shout out. Now, speaking of podcasts and true crime podcasts, I think that you're going to like um, one is called Ignorance Was Bliss and the other one is called Resolved Mysteries. Let's start with that one. Resolved Mysteries just started season two this month and it's a fun mystery podcast with a bit of snark. So who doesn't love that? And I also love the fact that they're giving Roswell, New Mexico a little bit of love, which is actually where I worked as a reporter in my early 20s. Anyways, here is their promo. Check it out. Hi, we're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin, and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries Podcast. Our podcast follows the 80s and 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. We have a love for true crime and the unsolved. If you don't remember Unsolved Mysteries, we forgive you, but you don't have to know to get into our show. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, or just stories about weird shit like Bigfoot, this is your podcast. The stories we cover range from totally ridiculous to truly heartbreaking. We do detailed research on all of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired, then drink some wine and give you the latest updates on every case. We talk about stories that will leave you laughing, crying, and occasionally outraged. Resolve Mysteries podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite pods. Join us and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. Now you can find them and us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. You know what? Basically anywhere where you get your podcasts. We're there. We're waiting for you. Now, the second podcast that I want to tell you about is called Ignorance Was Bliss, a podcast about psychology and sometimes crime hosted by Kate. Everybody has a story, and not all of those stories are clear black and white issues, even when we think they are. We wonder, how did this happen? Or what is that like? Or what happens next? Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at IWB Podcast.